The Laughter Permitted Podcast is brought to you by Ally. Do it right. Hello, Dope Village. Julie Foudy. Alongside me, as always, Lynn Zowie. Hi, Lynn. Hi, Julie. Jules, before we dive into talking about today's guests, there was a big announcement last week. Yes, indeed. Netflix making a movie on the 99ers. Super pumped about it, actually. And it's a movie. People have said, like a doc? I said, no. Like a movie movie. Casting actors for our parts. Mm -hmm. It's going to be fun. Wonderful. We'll have a say in that. As a true diehard 99ers fan, I have a lot of questions. I'm going to save those, however, for the close of the show. We are going to do Good. a special edition of Questions Permitted, all 99ers film related. Good one. All right. Shall we get to our guests? I like that. Yes, we have another two for today. Love our two furs. I know. It's a two for one with cross country skiers Jesse Diggins and Keegan Randall. And you may recall Jesse and Keegan won gold at the 2018 Winter Olympics in a very dramatic fashion. We'll talk about that. It was the first gold medal actually ever won by the U.S. in cross-country skiing. Slow clap for Jesse and Keegan. But their stories don't end there with the gold about three months after the Olympics, Keegan was diagnosed with breast cancer, and she's now thankfully in remission and outspoken about her experience in order to help others. And Jesse recently came out with a book called Brave Enough, in which she opens up about how she struggled with an eating disorder in her late teens and how she ultimately healed and went on to become an Olympic champion. And yes, these women are rad they're remarkable, they're rock stars. What other adjectives that start with an R can I come up with, Len? They're real, and I can't wait for you to hear their stories. So get comfortable listening. It's Jesse and Keegan. Support for Laughter Permitted comes from Ally. Is your money not sure what to do with itself right now? At Ally, they'll help it save for the future with their smart savings tools. Bucket your money for the things that matter most. Analyze your spending and save automatically. All on top of a competitive rate. For all things money, you deserve an Ally. Visit ally.com slash savings for more info. Ally, do it right. Ally Bank, member FDIC. Cliff Bar & Company is the family and employee-owned maker of Cliff Bars, Cliff Kid, and Luna Bars. And here's something I love about them. Since they started almost 30 years ago, they've always put people and communities first. Now they've committed to help feed the fight with, get this, an initial donation of more than 7 million Cliff, Luna, and Cliff Kid Bars to food banks, first responders, and healthcare workers fighting this pandemic. Boom! Community. It's a beautiful thing. Kick back, relax, and unwind. Let's have a good time finding the joy in life. We're smiling so bright, talking and laughing combined. Feeling alright, get comfortable listening. It's laughter permitted. 
she waiting in line, Lynn? Have you let her uh, in? I, as, as of right now, I have not seen her pop in. Okay. Lynn has, Lynn has host control. I have all the power. Nice. She's not <laughs> I popped got the up. power! Boom. Where, where is she? British Columbia? Mm-hmm. She's out in Penticton. It's a really cool, um, cool little area, like really amazing recreation, I think. And um, I haven't been out there yet, but I've been close to it when we had a camp in the Methow Valley. So here's Keegan. You guys must go to the coolest places all the time. We're really lucky. We get to go right? to some amazing spots. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, there she is. There we go. Sorry. Hi. Thank you so much, Keegan, for being flexible. Oh, no, no problem. I can only imagine how complex it is right now, trying to fit in everything. Training. Well, and as you know, I've never been the most technologically um, advanced <laughs> and sufficient, so this has been very challenging for me, trying to, like, <laughs> shoot Zooms all the time. Google Calendar, it's really impressive. Oh, Google yeah. Calendar's the best. Changed my life. Yeah, I couldn't figure out the time zone switching, though. Oh, I can't figure out time zones either. <laughs> Ask Julie. <laughs> That's yeah. why every time I write, I have to put both time zones for Lynn. That's for Lynn, really. Mm-hmm. I'm in <laughs> Cleveland. Yeah. Julie's in California. Oh, nice. Hi, Keegan. How are you, darling? Hi. Good to see you. <laughs> you too. Did we actually get to see you in Pyeongchang? I don't think actually I saw you there, although we will talk about your race because I was very much into that. Um, But yeah, no, I didn't actually, I wasn't at the race. I was watching it on one of our monitors. I forget what else was going on that day. I know we got to meet a lot of people, but I was like, oh man, I know she was there. I don't know if we got to see her. Yeah. Uh, Thank you guys both again for doing this. Should Should we start the party? Sure. The first thing we always do on the podcast is we set the scene. So, Jesse and Keegan, can you set the scene of where you are? Sure. Um, I'm in Boston right now, um, in Southie, to be specific, so not that far from the beach. Um, My boyfriend's in the room right next to me, uh, working from home as well. And um, it's a sunny, beautiful day, which I'm excited about, because I finally put flowers on our deck. Aww. Nice. <laughs> well, it's also a beautiful day here in British Columbia. I live in the small town of Penticton, which is uh, the home place of the Canadian Ironman. Uh, so we sit in between a couple big lakes and we've got the mountains. So thankfully, it's an outdoor playground. Uh, and that has been the saving grace in this quarantine, yeah. still being able to get outside and at least be able to enjoy the outdoors. Um, my four-year-old is upstairs with my husband, uh, as well as the four-month-old golden retriever puppy. So, uh, we're going to kind of keep, keep them at bay outside the closed door here, but, uh, I was, uh, lucky to get out for a nice run this morning. So I'm fired up for a good day. You already got your run in Keegan. Nice. I did. You know, being, being a mom with like, with the schedule these days, it's like, if I don't get out and get it done early, uh, it may not happen. So it's, uh, it's my perfect way to start the day. It, and it's nice to hear that other people lock themselves in their bedrooms like I do. I think that's the norm these days. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, where can I go to get a little peace and quiet? That's what I need. I'm going to go to my bedroom and lock myself in there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, thank you to you both for doing this. Much appreciated. Whenever we have teammates on, what we like to do is have the teammates introduce one another. So if you could... Jesse and Keegan introduce each other both as athletes and as people. 
Oh my goodness. Okay. The pressure. I know. That's a lot of pressure. Um, well, I'll start. Um, and Keegan tells the story probably better than I can. So I'll let her talk about how we met. But I met her when I was really young and she was the superstar of cross country skiing. And I remember reading about her in like the cross country skiing magazines and being like, oh my gosh, there's an American who is not only on the podium, but winning races. That's super cool. Like, wow, legend. And so one of my biggest dreams ever was trying to make the US ski team. So when you finally get to that level and then you get to meet this person that you've seen in magazines or read about on the internet, and they're not only super professional, but they're actually super, <laughs> not scary at all, um, really warm and welcoming. That's just such an incredible feeling to see that, you know, this hero who's larger than life is also a very kind person. And I think that described Keegan really well because she really welcomed everyone into the team. I remember she invited me to her room to watch episodes of Glee at the 2011 World Championships. Aww. And I was like, oh my God, I'm sitting on the bed next to this legend, but we're watching Glee together, so we have something in common. And she was the only one that would come. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that at the time. I thought I was like really special or something. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it was, it's just really cool that, um, she's really welcoming. She's really open. Um, she's willing to share everything she's learned, whether it's in training or, um, how to try to set up a zoom call or, you know, <laughs> she's just a really an open book and, and really, um, really skilled in leadership and willing to take on that role. And I think that's something that is also really remarkable about Keegan because a lot of people are capable, but they're just not willing to invest their personal time. And Keegan does so much mm. for the community, not just for the ski community, but for sports in general. She's the um, U.S. president of Fast and Female. She has a role in the IOC. And then, of course, under that, the USOC. So she's a really amazing athlete rep and is super professional and just an incredible representative for all the athletes in meetings, which um, as an athlete, I really appreciate that because she does such a good job like looking out for us and standing up for us and explaining what's going on. And so I think she just really um, is well-rounded and sees all the different sides of sports. Yeah, Keegan! <laughs> oh, well, thank you, Jesse. Um, I often feel like I have my head down on a mission, so it's great to hear that it, uh, what I do has an impact on others because mm -hmm. um, it's certainly um, – I love to do it. So – yeah, Jessie is like a little sister uh, to me. Um, when I first met her, um, I had taken a little break from the World Cup tour, and I'd come home early to uh, my hometown of Anchorage, Alaska, which happened to be hosting the Junior Nationals. And I'm alongside the course, and I see this little ponytail bopping down the trail. And I had no idea who she was, but I looked at her, and I said, that girl has the right energy. <laughs> and uh, later that night, they invited me to come and give a presentation at the awards. So I shared with the kids uh, how my World Cup journey had been going and how we were going after that first ever women's Olympic medal. And I, um, after the talk, I was signing posters and about halfway through the line, I ran out and I was just uh, mortified because all these kids have been standing in line waiting, but these kids were great. They went out and they just found anything they could find. And so this blonde girl comes up to me with the backside of a Rice Krispies cereal box, I think it was. And I signed, you know, I don't know, dream big, go for it, Keegan Randall. Um, and then 
three years later, she pops up on the world championship team. And it's like that ponytail. It was you. <laughs> uh, you recognized right. it. And uh, Jesse is known on our team as the sparkle chipmunk because she just brings uh, eternal energy and optimism and sparkles. Um, she, she brought the glitter to, to our team. You know, we put it on before races um, and that has always helped us, you know, just bring kind of that playful spirit to, uh, to, you know, our very serious job, but um, just always full of energy, always up for anything. You know, she did go along with my glee. Um, she got me into the show <laughs> once upon a time, um, which were just for us, you know, some nice ways to kind of bond when we weren't out training. Um, but Jesse and I, we were world champions in 2013 together, our first ever world championship win. Um, we were on the podium in World Cup together and then um, ultimately came into the 2018 Olympics um, and got to team up one more time and um, and then Jesse made it gold. So um, what's been really fun for me is to to have started with Jesse as the younger sister, but to have really witnessed her grow and mature as an athlete and to see that um, she's not only incredibly talented skier, probably the toughest athlete I know can go deeper into the pain cave than anyone else I've ever seen. Mm. Um, but she um, also um, is a great representative for, for all the girls out there who are maybe silently dealing with some things that um, you assume elite athletes would never go through. Um, but Jessie's yeah. been through some things herself um, and she's been incredibly brave in sharing those and showing girls that, um, you know, we, we all have these things that go on under the surface, but you know, if you can really respect yourself um, and dream big and be open about it, you know, look what you can achieve. And she's the shining example of that now. And now that I've stepped back from the team, you know, she's taking on a, a leadership role and bringing up a really talented younger group of girls. So, I'm really excited to see where it can go. And, you know, Jesse's got a long ski career in front of her. And then um, it'd be amazing to see what other platforms she continues to expand out to. And we are going to talk about all of those various things. We actually were having a debate, Lynn and I, about, okay, where should we start this podcast? Because there's so much good stuff we can get to. And I, and I was like, no, the debate is over. We are starting at literally the start line of the 2018 Olympics with the team sprints. I like, I want to take it from that start line because that moment I was in Pyeongchang covering it for ESPN, of course, not on the course, but watching that race from one of our monitors, uh, I, it was insane. Come on, start me at the start line. He can probably should do that because she was the one on the start she line. Was, she was the first one up. Yep, that's right. Can you explain the event? Yep. Yeah. So this is the team sprint format. Um, it's only been contested in the Olympics since 2006. Uh, it's a two-person team event. And a sprint course is typically between a kilometer and a kilometer and a half. And <clears throat> the, the it's a kind of a alternating type format. So the first person goes, skis the 1.5-kilometer you know, lap, takes around three minutes usually tags off in an exchange zone that's only 20 meters long so imagine coming into an exchange at 25 miles an hour you've got 10 other teams trying to do the same thing oh, and geez. you've got skis and poles and you've got to tag off to your teammate before that line like physically just hit them like touch them yep, yep. Okay. hand to body so okay. um sometimes you're like literally flying through the air to just get your hand on them and then crash and burn but you're also trying not to do that in front of any, anyone else so it's pretty wild 
Um, so you tag your partner, they go out, ski the, the, the lap, you know, so you get about three minutes recovery and then you do it again and again. So each person skis three laps uh, for a total of six for the team. And then that's the semifinal. And then the top, uh, I think it's the top two teams automatically advance and then the next six teams. So then you basically get an hour break and then you have to do it all again. So by the time you saw us on the start line, um, we had already gone through the first round and kind of recovered and then rebooted for the final. Oh, gosh. That's <laughs> exhausting. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay, Keegan, so you're first up. So I'm first up, and I know that this is going to be my last Olympic race. Um, the The spotlights were on, and they were so bright in that stadium that you had to wear sunglasses. So. I had done 17 Olympic races before that, but somehow this was the most, I call it the most Olympic feeling race of my life. I don't know if it was just knowing it was my last, you know, knowing that we had this chance with the team. But as I stood on the start line, I was just so inspired to basically roll my eyes back in my head if I had to, because I knew (laughs) if I could put out the right effort, you know, and tag off to Jesse in a good position, we could be in the medals. And, uh, but I also knew I was up against two of the other greatest skiers of all time. Marit Bjorgen from Norway, who has won the most, I think, winter Olympic medals ever. Um, and then wow. Charlotte Kala from Sweden, who I believe had already won two medals earlier that week. Uh, multiple time Olympic champion, obviously in fantastic shape. And everybody was talking about those two. And so I knew my job was to try and keep us close. Um, so we had won the semifinal. So I got to start at the top of the pyramid. The camera comes spanning in front of my face. And while I have all the butterflies in the world in my stomach, I just put on the biggest grin because I knew I was ready. You know, we'd already, we'd done the work. Now I was just about ready to go out and do it. Um, And so I just gave a smile. I gave a wave to the camera and then set my poles in the snow and the gun went off. And uh, the, the first lap, you know, since you are skiing three all out laps, the first lap was really about just getting in a good position conserving energy. Um, so even though I was kind of leading out of the stadium, you know, I let the other kind of anxious skiers kind of come around me, but made sure that I also held a good position. Uh, we kind of went, made it around that lap. I think I was sitting in, in third or so tagged off to Jesse. Um, she also skied, uh, an incredible smart first lap. Um, as she was getting ready to come in for her, the end of her first lap, however, when she would be out on course, I would come into this pit zone and our yeah. wax technicians would take the skis off my feet and yeah. wax, re-wax them in between. This so Jesse crazy. and the other girls wow. are starting to come down the stadium and my skis are still on the bench. Oh, and I'm kind of like, guys, guys, she's coming back in my skis. I mean, it was a little tense, but they got those skis off the bench onto my feet, like probably seconds before Jesse came into the exchange zone. So um, we go out and I know that the second lap is when the pace is going to accelerate because both Mara and Charlotte, they are really strong distance skiers. And so they know they can wear out the sprint out of those that are just kind of pure sprinters. So we go and sure enough, the pace is picking up. But as we go around the course, I just, I felt like I was able to just match them stride for stride. Um, And so I made it through that second lap right, right on the right on their tails, uh, tagged off to Jesse. And that's when I started to get a good feeling because I knew if I could make it strong through that second lap, I could hang on for whatever it took on that last lap. So on Jesse's second lap, she started to feel like things were getting a little too crowded um, because there was still quite of a pack at that point. So she took the lead and put on a surge and pretty much broke the race down to three teams. So by the time she came in to tag me on that lap, uh, we were in the lead of the race. Oh my Um, gosh. 
So she sends me out. I know my Monday hands are getting lap. sweaty, and I know how this ends. I know I'm getting nervous too. I'm like, yeah, yeah. So she sends me out into the lead, and I know my biggest strength is going to be the big climb. So I go out kind of at a controlled pace. Sure enough, uh, Marit and Charlotte come around me because they're kind of anxious, kind of going at each other. So I, you know, I kind of let them take the lead, thinking, "Oh, great, I'm going to draft." Well, as, as they come around me, a little bit of space opens up between me and them. And I'm thinking like, oh man, I cannot let this happen. If you look back at the TV now, it looks like there's a gap forming. And I'm sure people are thinking like, oh my God, Keegan's losing it. And that's when I was like, no, I'm getting back on. And so as we came into the climb, I just, I accelerated hard. I knew my job was again, just to keep us right there. It was, it was so cool to just be in that position and, and really just empty the tank, uh, come down into the stadium, come off that final turn into the tag zone, you know, tags off Jesse. And, uh, and I think she, she took off in the lead again. Um, and so at that point, that was just for me, the biggest relief to know I'd done my job and I kind of just fell in the snow and, uh, and it took me probably, I don't know, 30 seconds or a minute to kind of like pull myself back up and go, Oh yeah, that's right. She's watch what's going on here. I wonder how she's doing. (laughs) And, uh, and by the time I kind of looked up, they were just cresting the big hill and starting to come down into the stadium. Jesse was in third. And uh, I, I started to let myself think like, oh my gosh, barring disaster, we're going to get a medal. And then um, I see Norway and Sweden bump skis a little bit and almost fall. And then Jesse starts going wide around the big turn. And she goes so wide that I think she actually went off the course for a second. Like she was outside the, what we call the V boards, which demark where the thing is. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, I, do I want to watch this? But she comes back in at the last moment and sneaks through the narrowest spot between Norway and Sweden. Um, and at that point, I'm like, I got to get to the finish line. So I'm running over to the finish line. And when I get there, I'm kind of peeking around the photographers and I see them come off the final turn and I start yelling. But then I realized the Swedish girl is right next to me and she's yelling. So I like yell louder. Yeah. She yells louder. And it's like, it's like whoever can will their teammate to the finish line faster is going to get it. So we're screaming and they're sprinting and we're watching from straight on. So it looks dead even. So I saw the lunge at the line and I immediately look at the scoreboard thinking I'm going to see photo finish. And I was almost confused when I saw number one United States 0.19. It was like, oh, oh my gosh, we didn't just get a medal. Like we just, we just got the gold. And I was so unprepared that I let out the most ugly, awkward scream and I ran over and I tackled Jessie after she had just done this amazing effort and uh, she still had enough breath to say, did we just win the Olympics? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's precious. Did we win? I I was confused because I didn't know who you were by your scream. I never... Like heard that, yeah. Heard that. It was really cool. <laughs> it was this like primal yell. Yes. I mean, it was the was. coolest sound ever because Keegan, so professional, let the deepest emotion go. And it was such a beautiful, cool thing. I, I was, yeah, it was really amazing. What does that feel like in your body at that moment? Just like, you know, you feel weightless, euphoria. Um, I was nearly blacked out because I had gone, as Keegan had said, I, well, I knew I was up against, like Keegan was up against the two best distance skiers in the world. And I was up against the two best sprinters in the world who had already won medals that week and sprint events at the Olympics. So my plan was to try to tire them out because I knew as an all rounder, that was our only shot 
to really stay in the medals because I did not want it to come down to a pure sprint. Um, so in lap two, I had started to push the pace. And then lap three, it was just all out, everything he had. And so by the time, you know, I like my vision was like narrowing down, like oh. I the crowd tuned down. I didn't hear things. I didn't see things. It was just like every single part of my being was focused on getting to that line and, and letting those movements that you've practiced over and over and over just take over. Um, and I think they, you might call it like being in the zone or being in a flow state, but whatever it was, it was just like not overthinking it and just like letting that focus happen. But by the time I crossed the line, you know, all that sort of pain and discomfort that comes with endurance sports, um, I've been pushing it off and it just came flooding back in. And so I was in a lot of pain. I was pretty out of it, clearly, because I didn't really recognize who Keegan was. In a second. Um, so I, and I was in disbelief. Like I, I knew we had won, like cognitively, I knew like, okay, we had won, but it didn't, it felt like we had won just like a race. It didn't sink in that we had won the Olympics and it, mm. like what that would mean to me, to Keegan, to our families who were all in the stands, like going nuts to our team, like to everyone, like it didn't really sink in until we got up off the snow and saw our whole team there right next to the finish line. And they, they were all out there and coaches were like, some of them were on their knees, just like sobbing with like tears coming down. And, you know, we had never seen that kind of display of emotion before. And to see what it really meant to everyone, that to me was like the moment that I realized like, oh my God, like, what have we just done? This is crazy. And that commentary at the end, (laughs) I know you guys couldn't hear it, but oh, I mean, to this day, when I listen to that and the listeners haven't actually watched the NBC feed of this final 40 seconds, and I wish we had the rights to it, so I might have to reenact it. But the them going, who is it? Chad and Steve? Chad? Yeah, Chad yeah. Somala, who actually, I've known him since I was a junior skier because he's a collegiate coach in Minnesota. So I think it was extra special because he wasn't a total stranger. Like, I actually knew uh, him he knew me and was following our team and was a very passionate sports fan as well. Well, you you could tell because he was like willing you on. They're all gas. Here comes Diggins, Jesse Diggins for gold. Yeah, <laughs> you can tell he like gave up the pretense of being impartial in that. I moment. know. Was like I no, know. Yeah. like this is <laughs> the, that was the best. I mean, that was the best moment. I don't know Chad and Steve, but I love Chad and Steve after that. Yeah, no, it's uh, I got to be with Chad on the one year anniversary of our, our race last year. Um, and it's, uh, I mean, he's an amazing guy. He's done so much for the sport. So for anyone to call the race and have it be him and put the emotion behind it. And I think what was so cool is, you know, uh, not, not everyone can understand cross country skiing, but you know, together with what people were seeing on the screen and hearing that commentary to me, like I've heard so many stories of people say that was their moment of the Olympics. And it was just so cool to, to give our sport, uh, that kind of that shining moment. We've been in the background for so long. And yeah. we finally got to show how cool and how exciting it could be. And we owe a lot to Chad for that. Oh, and, yeah. and that was the first ever, just to put it into context, not just first ever gold for USA cross country, first ever Olympic medal, right? For women. We had for one women. men's silver medal from 1972. And we've been hanging our like hope on that one medal from 72 for so long. 
but it's been my, it was been my mission my entire career to add a women's medal to that. And wow. so for, for it to come as a gold, as a team, you just couldn't have made it more perfect than that. You knew it was your last Olympic race, and I knew that too. And I think that added another layer mm. to how special it was and to how motivated we were because you were, you know, you did your job so amazingly perfectly. I mean, could not have gone any better, you know? And um, I think that was so cool that, like, the last Olympic race to lay down, like, the perfect race. Like, what a way to go out. You know, that's what every athlete hopes for, I think. And so I was motivated as all heck because I was like, this is the last one. I got to make it count. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I was <laughs> just – that's down. what I was going to ask. Like, it's Keegan's fifth Olympics – She's been an icon to you, a legend in the sport. And for you to be able to give it and dig into that pain cave as deep as you always do, but to leave it all out, I'm sure for her on, and, and for yourself as well, but knowing that was her last race had to have been something special. Oh, I, I mean, it still makes me a little bit teary to think about it because it was a crazy moment, you know? Like the, I mean, it's it's your career, and this isn't just – a job or a hobby. It's your life. You put everything towards this. I mean, Keegan's been doing this, I mean, years and years and years. And mm -hmm. to have gone through so many years of grueling training sessions, but also very, very fun team camps and being on the road together. And, you know, you live with your teammates for five months all winter, but then you see them in the summer. So, I mean, you get to see each other for like nine months out of the year. It's you really feel that bond with your teammates and with your coaches and your wax techs. And so for this to all come together for everyone on the team, I think it just felt, um, I mean, I, I know Keegan, you've used the word like validating, just like, okay, like we put this work into it and, you know, we'd be proud no matter what the outcome was, but to get the ultimate outcome, you know, as a team, like how cool, how, what a huge step forward for women skiing. And I think, one of the coolest things is seeing the ripple effects of that. Like how many kids went out and bought skis and how many families signed up for ski lessons and just like mm -hmm. how many young girls were like, mom, dad, I'm going to go to the Olympics someday. And like, mm -hmm. that's so cool that, you know, it really spread far and wide and, and something really amazing came of it. Someone told me a story the other day. They said they, <clears throat> uh, they overheard two little like seven year old boys playing like in the backyard going, all right, you be Jesse and I'll be Keegan oh, and I'm going to come in and tag you. And uh, so speaking of that ripple effect, it's just, it's been so, so cool cute. to see um, what this has done for skiing in oh, our country. So cute. And I love that it's not just girls, right? It's so important to be girls, but that it's also having such an impact on young boys, seeing women do these amazing things as well, which is awesome. Cliff Bar & Company has been fueling athletes for almost 30 years with their Cliff & Luna Bars, and this is super cool. Even during a time when there are no live sports, Cliff & Luna continue to support female athletes. In fact, right now they're featuring awesome women on their new limited edition Cliff Bar packaging, including soccer star Megan Rapinoe, tennis legend Venus Williams, surfer Lakey Peterson, skateboarder Jordan Barrett, climber Ashima Shireishi, and mountain biker Katarina Nash. Check out these awesome new packages for yourself in-store or online at cliffbar.com. Is your money not sure what to do with itself right now? 
At Ally, they'll help it save for the future with their smart savings tools. Bucket your money for the things that matter most. Analyze your spending and save automatically. All on top of a competitive rate. For all things money, you deserve an Ally. Visit ally.com slash savings for more info. Ally, do it right. Ally Bank, member FDIC. Let's reel it forward because you go home, Keegan, after that. You go back to British Columbia. Your husband has just taken a new job, but then your life takes another change. Take us back to that night. And I believe it was May of 2018. Is that right? It was. So now that we're in May of 2020, it's, uh, you know, um, it's bringing back some memories. Um, yeah. So it's literally once the season concluded, we put our stuff in a moving van. We moved from Alaska to British Columbia because my husband had been so supportive of my Olympic career. We were really excited to shift gears and focus on his career, which was bringing us to Canada. Um, of course, coming off of the gold medal, there's a lot of requests and interviews and travel and it had been really chaotic. So I had literally just gotten back to British Columbia for a week at home with my family. And we had gone out for a hike on Mother's Day on this hillside across from our house. And in May, there's these like big yellow flowers called balsam roots that come out. So the flowers are everywhere. You know, it's probably in the mid to high 70s, like beautiful Mm. temperature. We go out and have this um, amazing hike. My son is two years old. And I just remember that day, I had this supreme feeling of contentment, like, wow, I just capped off my career with this high note. I'm excited about the future. Look, we're here. We're building this new life. And then getting ready for bed that night, I just happened to notice, I brushed past my right breast and happened to notice a little hard spot. And it would have been so easy to just like ignore it. Mm -hmm. But I kind of like investigated a little bit more and it certainly, I hadn't felt it before. And, and I just immediately had this kind of sinking feeling. And it bothered me that it was Sunday night and I couldn't do anything about it right then. So Monday morning, I go to the local hospital. I walk into the mammogram department, you know, announce I think I need a mammogram. They kindly let me know that I need to be referred. So that (laughs) sends me to a walk-in clinic. So I wait, you know, wait at the walk-in clinic for a while, get in to see the doctor. He's looking at me going, oh, you're young and healthy. It's probably nothing. Uh, But we should probably order some tests just to follow up and make sure. So I leave there a little bit relieved thinking, ah, it's probably nothing, but still have that pit in my stomach. Mm. So it takes two more weeks before I can get those scans. I get a mammogram and an ultrasound. What they see in the ultrasound is concerning enough. They want to do a biopsy. So we do the biopsy, but then I've got plans to go see my friends, uh, my World Cup friends wedding in Sweden. So I take off to Sweden and I'm on my way to the wedding and I get a call. And it's, it's actually a doctor that I've met in town who's a ski enthusiast. So he's the one to call me. And he lets me know the biopsy is revealed. It's aggressive breast cancer. Mm. And I just almost can't believe what I'm hearing. I mean, on one hand, I have that intuition, that pit in my stomach that knew something was up. But on the other hand, I am in the shape of my life. I have so many plans. This is not in the cards. And how could this happen? I've done everything right. I exercise. I eat right. I take good care of myself. I don't do drugs. You know, it's like, this isn't fair. Right. But as I process all that, it was amazing how quickly my athlete frame of mind took over and it said, all right, you know, this is the new goal. This is the new plan. What do I have to do? You know, build my team, make a plan. I'm just, you know, I'm just going to get through this. How old were you at the time, Keegan? I was 35. My son was two years old and just turned two. 
Um, I have no risk factors in my family. Um, my mom has four sisters and you know, no one has ever had problems with it. I got genetically tested. I don't have the gene. Um, you know, the case of women under 40 getting breast cancer is super low. Um, the type of breast cancer I got is even a smaller minority of that. So it's just, it's so random, um, and unbelievable and how close proximity it came to just such a high. Um, how, how that evening going back to that night, you found that like you weren't even doing like a, a, a breast exam, right? Like you weren't in the shower thinking that way. It was just this random weird brush up. Yeah. Yeah. I was just getting ready for bed. And I think it was the way I like put my arm through my shirt and I just happened to brush past it. And it felt like a uh-huh. pee, like a hard pee. And, uh, and it was kind of moving around. Um, so it's just like, that wasn't right. And I, and I really credit having been well-educated growing up. I, I always did this uh, women's run in Alaska every year that was all about breast cancer awareness and detection. So it's like the moment you find something, yeah, you know, go get it checked. And so that's to me, it was like, point. yep, I got to do that. And that's, that's a, that's a big point. deal because I've since heard from so many women, you know, the, the few that are in my age group that this happens to, and they'll let it go for months. And for me, we ended up finding a lymph node that was already um, infected. So Wow. It was on the move already. Um, and within another month or two, and it could have gotten a lot more serious. Wow. Okay. So you reframe immediately, which is amazing as an athlete that, that you're like, okay, this sucks, yep. but we're going to deal with it. And then you become, which I loved, you became very open about therapy and chemo and how things were going. What made you decide to go that route? Well, I mean, my initial thought was actually like, you know, I've had this amazing following and community that supported me as an athlete. And I kind of felt like I owed it to everyone to let them know what was going on. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I immediately recognized like, well, when I've gone through injuries in the past, I've been open about it, like I had a blood clot, and I was open about that. And that helped people diagnose blood clots. So I was like, you know, here I am this anomaly going through cancer treatment. But how about I share it? And, you know, maybe we can learn something through it. And maybe I can help pass along now that I'm going through this experience myself, because I'd ironically gotten involved with a group called Active Against Cancer. Um, and their whole thing was physical activity through treatment. And so it was like, well, now I'm really going to be able to see what, what difference does it make? What can you do? And if I share that, maybe that'll help. The part I didn't anticipate was how much I was going to benefit from putting it out there. Mm. You know, knowing that I didn't have anything to hide and then just seeing like the messages of support um, you know, hearing from other people who had been through it. Um, I mean that I still don't have words to describe, uh, that, and, um, you know, as an athlete and after a gold medal, you know, a lot of people are, you know, wishing you, you know, congratulations and you feel a support going through cancer was on a completely new level. And I can see how, you know, you do kind of want to like bring everything in tight and you kind of want to stay to yourself and be private, but by being open, I benefited so much from that. Mm. Um, and so that's now when I talk to cancer patients is like, I know you want to hold it in. I know you don't want to accept help, but do it, you know, create a great team around you because you will, you could be the most positive person in the world and you will have tough moments where you slip and that's when your support team is there. Um, and that's when you need them more than ever. And I also found that by being outward with it, when I was going through something tough, it gave meaning to what I was going through because it wasn't just me getting better. Like this may help someone else. Right. Um, and it's kind of like when I would have a tough day training and so I'd pour my energy into helping a teammate 
you know, it helped me forget about what was not going right for me. And it, and it, it like motivated, it energized me to help a teammate. And so that this was kind of the same thing. Interesting. And, and it was, it was so important to my experience being productive and effective. Um, and I would definitely recommend it to anyone. When and what was that moment like when you got the all clear? Well, it's interesting because unfortunately, you know, unlike athletics where it's a very clear, you cross that finish line, you know, with cancer, you could never completely say like, oh, awesome. That's in the rear view mirror. But Mm -hmm. when I, I went through six rounds of chemotherapy and that was for sure the hardest part because that made me feel the sickest. I lost all my hair. Um, But I got through that. And then I had a a lumpectomy where they take out the tissue where the lumps were. Um, The first one was mostly successful, but when it came, the pathology came back, there was one area of the tissue that was showing some precancerous cells. So then my surgeon recommended going back in and cutting out a little bit more. So that was a tense couple of days when we're like, okay, we've done the chemo now. There's still these, these cells lingering, what's going on. But when she went back in the second time, cut out that little bit more, she got a completely clear margin, which meant, you know, there was no sign of anything else. So there's, we have reason to believe like anything was in that concentrated area. And she actually sent me this little gift that was this woman dancing like from the fifties. <laughs> and that was the moment when it was like, okay, you know, the, we think it's, it's clear. And then I did radiation on top of that just to make sure. But I think that moment for me was like, okay, we've, we've made the progress we wanted to make here. And now it's just about being optimistic for the future. And so you have to, do continuous checkups and how does that work? Yeah, I go in every six months. Um, okay. One of those visits each year is a mammogram. So they just kind of check that, but mammograms aren't perfect. So they do a physical exam and kind of just talk through how it's going. And that's really the best they can do. It's not like there's a, you know, for me, a PET scan doesn't really do much. Um, there's no blood test they can do. So it's really just about, you know, hoping that if something does crop crop up we can we can notice it catch it how do you deal with that uncertainty um i mean you know in theory we all have that uncertainty in our life right i mean uh especially those of us you like we're out training on the roads you know you you never know what's going to happen so for me i just i choose the future i want um you know i choose to take control of what things i can do right in front of me and, and I think that's so relevant to the situation we're all in with, with COVID-19 right now. Um, there's a lot to be fearful about. You know, the world is going to be different and um, things could really take a turn for the worse. But we don't know that. We also know that maybe we learn and science improves and maybe we all emerge from this a better society. And that, so that's what I like to do. I like to focus on what I would want to see happen. And then I do, okay, what can I do every day that's going to make me better, that's going to set me up to really take advantage of that future I want. Um, And it really, it just comes down to mindset. It comes down to practicing the conversation in your mind, acknowledging those thoughts of fear and doubt and negativity, acknowledging it, but then just saying, yeah, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. And I'm going to divert and go back to something that's more productive. I'm going to divert and go run the marathon in New York. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> you, you find out you're cancer free and then your first thing is like, let's run a marathon. Y'all are crazy. It's official. <laughs> come on. Uh, I know. <laughs> and, we, are, we are definitely crazy. <laughs> and you run it in a sub three hours. Oh, I would have been like, ah, I'll do it. I'll do it in six. 
Yeah. You're like, no, I'm going to set a goal of under three. And you do it. Come on. Well, it's, it's amazing. You know, as an athlete, you're so conditioned to work on work through goals, right? And it was amazing to me when I finished my career, we all of a sudden like have this open future of like, what are the goals now? And so I had actually, I wanted to run the New York Marathon before I found out I had cancer. I actually entertained the idea of trying to do the New York Marathon in 2018 while I was going through chemo. But then I realized that just because you can doesn't mean you should. Like, I think I could have physically finished it, but I think it would have been a struggle. It would have put me at risk with my immune system. So I said, okay, you know, now doesn't make sense, but I'm going to come back a year from now. And this is going to be my goal to work back. And because I stayed so active through my treatment, I mean, there really were very few days where I wasn't able to get out and do something. Um, I think I maintained a lot of fitness that was coming off of a 20-year career. And then it just just about getting the legs ready to run. And I I worked with my high school running coach. We came up with a plan. Um, Two of my teammates uh, said they would do it with me. Uh, You know, Liz Steven and I, Sergeant, who are, you know, have been Olympic teammates for, for so long. So, you know, you, you're accountable to your teammates too. Okay, we set this goal. We're going to do it. And I just kind of methodically went through the workouts. And I would, I would tell you two weeks before, I was really doubting whether three hours was going to be possible. The long runs were destroying my legs. I wasn't feeling that fast. But it's amazing how you put in the work, you follow the plan. And then we came up to race day. We got to rest a little bit and ran with my teammates. And uh, I think after you've gone through an experience like cancer, you know, it's like, there, there aren't any mediocre days anymore. Like every day you get to get out there mm-hmm. and you just ha- kind of have this appreciation. So we got out there at 5 a.m. You know, we're on the on uh, Staten Island, I think, waiting to do the start. And it was just like, man, we get to go run a marathon today. And as we started out, you just can't help but be motivated by the 50,000 people you're running with. Yeah. And you're running through these burrows and every single inch of that course was lined with people cheering. The hard part was holding ourselves back. And that was our strategy. We mm. said, we know we've got to be conservative in the first half so that we have the energy to run the second half. And so we actually ran a faster second half than first half. And that was the key. That was the key to the good, was the good time. And, and it was just, I running at teammates. And I remember at one point just kind of opening up my arms and going, can you believe we're doing this? This is amazing. Uh, and so to be able to come and run that marathon, um, you know, uh, Active Against Cancer was founded by Greta Waits, who's the nine-time winner of the New York City Marathon. So to be kind of tied into honoring her her story and her history and to run on behalf of Active Against Cancer, uh, it, it was just, it was so cool. The problem is, I don't know if I can do another marathon again because that experience was so incredible. Yeah, why? Why do another one? When you ran it in 255, I'd be like, check that off the list. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> Did you have a chili cheese dog at mile four, which is what I do when I run my charitable half marathons? Because I, I highly recommend them if you do run it again. Yeah. No, I'll tell you, though, and I think you'll appreciate this because I heard you're a donut lover, too. I went straight to Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> after the race, and I got like my favorite Take donut, it. and it was the best. <laughs> yes, pounding donuts straight after my kind of woman. What's yeah. your favorite donut? We would have had it for you if we were all together right I now. I know. I know. Well, that's right. The next time we get to meet up in person, we'll we'll have a, a donut fest. And what's but your favorite? I love like uh, a cinnamon roll with a maple glaze over oh, the top. Oh my oh. god, I love that's very Canadian more. of you. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Even more. <laughs> So a cinnamon roll is a donut, Keegan? 
Yes, it is. It is. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all our joke village that debates that on me. Thank you to Keegan. As if I could love you anymore. We've had a um, long standing debate on the podcast. Is a cinnamon roll a donut? Yep. Totally. Yep. The debate yes. is settled. Settled. Mm-hmm. All right, Jesse, let's, let's turn to your story first. Um, congratulations on the book as well. Brave oh, enough. Thank you. Brave enough. Jess came out. Jesse just wrote a book, came out in March. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a little sad because the audio version is not out yet. Can you explain that to me? Yeah. Um, so originally I was going to try to read it myself, but then they were like, well, you know, the publication date is in March. We want the audio to be out as soon as possible. So you need to choose a narrator to read it for you because they're going to get it done. The earliest I could have started reading was late April. Um, and so, of course, it turns out after we arranged all this, COVID-19 hits, uh, and um, we realize that it's not going to happen. So, like, it is in the process of being recorded right now. Um, so there will be an audio version available. But right now, it's just the hardcover book that's out. But it feels really great to have that done because I started working on this just a few months after the Olympics. Um mm-hmm. And really the motivation behind that was because at first um, a publishing company approached me about writing a book and I thought, mm, I don't know, like I don't have that interesting of a story. There's a lot of, there's a lot of sports books. There's a lot of Olympic stories and they're all great and they're all awesome and I love reading them, but do we really need another? I don't know. But then a little bit after that, um, the ESPN body shoot came up and I agreed to be in the body issue. And I kind of, I thought long and hard about whether or not I wanted to do it, but given my history of an eating disorder when I was 18, 19, I decided this Mm -hmm. would be a good time to start talking about that. Mm -hmm. I had never talked about it before. And it was, uh, you know, when I started ski racing, it was still a little too close, a little too personal, but I realized how much I had suffered from that and how much I had suffered from like shame and guilt that didn't need to be associated with it. I think we're learning a lot about mental health and um, different, different ways that we're affected by it. But we're also learning that it's not your fault and that, you know, an eating disorder is a mental illness and it's not, it's not a lifestyle choice. It's not bad behavior. It's not something you, you did wrong. It's like, you know, if you have depression, you wouldn't be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're so sad. How dare you? You know, like you, you would support that person and help them out. And so I think Mm -hmm. as we learn more about it, I realized, wow, like there's so much more education that needs to happen. So much more support women, especially women in sport, but men and women everywhere, you know, it, it doesn't discriminate. doesn't matter where you're from, what you look like, what your sexual orientation is like, every kind of person can suffer from an eating disorder. And that's also not widely known because it's largely stigmatized as, you know, a teenage girl thing. Mm. So I realized that with the platform I had after the Olympics, you know, it would be a real shame not to use it to educate people and empower people and hopefully save some lives because I was going down a really dark path when I was 18, 19. And I talk about it at length in the book, but Mm -hmm. the real inspiration for writing the book was um, bringing a little more understanding to coaches, to parents, to athletes, to teammates, and to people who are currently struggling with the eating disorder um, to bringing a little light on it um, and helping people understand how I got into it, but more importantly, how I got out of it and how treatment worked for me and how I 
was able to be supported by people. And I guess my whole goal was, you know, in starting to talk about my eating disorder and um, talking about it in the book and doing the body issue and all of that was to make sure that people understand that you don't need to feel ashamed and that it's not your fault and that asking for help is brave. And so um, it's been really cool seeing the outreach um, when I started talking about it. And I was really, really nervous that people were going to see me differently and that I would be then known as the eating disorder girl, not like Jesse, the person who does lots of things and <laughs> is a complete person with feelings and emotions. Um, I was worried that that was going to happen, but it didn't at all. I didn't get any weird backlash from the depths of social media. It was all super supportive. And mm -hmm. I think the coolest thing was hearing from like male coaches who said like, you know, I work with young women and this is really good for me to know. And it's changed how I think about body image and how I talk to my athletes. And, um, I want to be there to provide more resources and support for them or, you know, parents who have said, I, you know, read your blog post or I read this part of your book with my children. And we had a really great talk about body image and about being open. And for me, that was, that was really gratifying to feel like maybe I could help even just one person. Um, it, it was cool to know that, you know, talking about, like Keegan said, you know, talking about the hard things is actually very empowering. And there's so much strength in sharing that vulnerability and showing that, you know, we're not perfect. We go through great times, but we go through low times as well. And, you know, reaching out and asking for support is a really awesome thing to do and it can only help you. So building that support team and sharing the things that you're struggling with, with people that you trust, um, is, is really, really helpful. And it's a good way to go. How did you get to the point where one, you were willing to recognize that this is an issue and two, that you needed help? Yeah. Well, I wasn't at first, I wasn't willing to recognize that it was an issue. Um, when I was, yeah, I was 18, 19, I was pretty young and, um, I didn't know a lot about eating disorders. I thought I did from like my eighth grade health class, you know, I was like, oh yeah, that's that thing that affects girls who have no willpower and they destroy themselves. And, you know, I just, that was all I thought I knew about it. And so I thought it was my fault. I thought I was a really bad kid. I was super ashamed. I thought everyone would judge me. And, you know, I was just uh, a big reason I got into an eating disorder was um, it was a coping mechanism for stress because I was putting a lot of pressure on myself to be perfect in everything I did. And I think a lot of, especially women in sports can relate to that feeling of, I want to do everything. I want to do it a hundred percent. I'm going to give it my all. I'm going to try to be perfect at these things that I do. And just that sort of type A personality, it can be a huge strength. It can be super great. Like it can help you get through the hardest of workouts and the hardest of races. But for me, it was really tough because um, I just kept putting more and more pressure on myself. And so um, it was my parents who, you know, I was doing my best to hide my disorder. And um, it's actually shockingly easy to hide. But I was living at home at the time and they realized what, you know, something's not right. Jessie is not herself. She's not happy anymore. What's going on? And they noticed little things like disappearing after meals or declaring certain foods to not be healthy enough to eat. And, um, and they, they had an intervention and we talked and eventually I decided to get help and I ended up going to the Emily program. And, um, after a few months of like outpatient treatment, it wasn't working as well. So I ended up doing like day programming where I'd come in every day from, 
8 a.m. to like 3 p.m. And um, that was what really ended up saving my life because I needed that more intensive care. And I was with a group of women. So I felt like I was on a team, which was a feeling that I was used to. And that felt really um, empowering for me. And we were invested in each other's recovery and in supporting one another and helping one another. And that's when I started to make more progress. Mm. And is it something that, and similar to, to what Keegan was saying, is that there's no real all clear, right? Like there, you still go in for testing. Is there something that this is still, you battle with it on a monthly basis or a weekly basis and there's things that trigger it still? Or do you feel like, okay, that's a phase I've lived in my life and I feel better now? Yeah, you know, I think similar to how like an alcoholic would say, I'm sober, right? They wouldn't say I was an alcoholic. They say I am sober. Like I am continually working on like taking care of myself. Um, I think people would say I'm in recovery because you, you always have that part of your brain that, you know, when things get stressful, when you're really hard on yourself, that's like that part of your brain goes, Oh, you know, it would make this better. <laughs> like, let's destroy ourselves like this. That'll fix it all. Mm-hmm. And you have to fight against that and be like, mm, Nope. Like we've been down that road. Doesn't work. Never works. Like I'm going to actually take care of myself today. Thanks so much. Um, and so you have to be willing to fight against that. And I think over time that voice has gotten so, so quiet and it barely ever comes out anymore, but I'm still on guard against it. And mm-hmm. I think that's why it's so great. Like, my coaches, my teammates, my sports um, psychologists, they all know about my history. And I feel like I can reach out at any time if I'm like, hey, like, this is getting to be really stressful. I'd like a little like accountability. I want you to check in with me today. Or I and it feels really awesome to know that they don't judge me for that. And no one ever would make me feel ashamed if I did need to reach out and you just feel super supported. Um, But yeah, I think one thing that's interesting is recovery isn't just like, bam, like you're fixed, you're recovered Mm -hmm. now. It's it's a really slow process. And it was basically um, a really gradual progression of, you know, when someone with an eating disorder um, uses that behavior that hurts themselves, whether it's binging and purging or just restricting, they call it using symptoms because it's the symptoms of their disorder that might look unique to them, but it's still something that's not helping their body. Um, and so the space and time between using symptoms would go from, you know, hours to a whole day, to a whole week, to a whole month, to a year. And it sort of gradually progressed to the point where, um, things that normally would trigger me like really high stress, high pressure environments, I was able to just turn that voice down and, Mm. and not use it. Well, it's, and it's such an issue as we know with, not just to your point with young women, but all of us as athletes know someone who either was a teammate, right? Or um, a friend or a family member who have gone through it. So for you to have the courage to step up and say, I want to speak about this to help others uh, is, is huge. I mean, I applaud you both for in these moments of your life saying my story is going to help someone else as hard as it is to share it first um, because it does. I mean, it's, it's going to change people's lives and your wisdom and your willingness to share this incredibly vulnerable moment is, is something that is super admirable. Well, I think it, the thing is like breast cancer and eating disorders, they are so personal. We all know somebody close to us who has struggled with one or the other or both. Um, And so I think like, 
it is important to talk about these things because it's not like such a foreign idea. I mean, everyone should know, um, like to do self breast exams. Like I think Keegan, you really inspired me like, okay, just, I'm, I'm doing this. Like I'm going to really be proactive about my health and, you know, and when it comes to body image, I think everyone, male and female, has had a moment where they've not totally appreciated their body and, you know, not taken the best care of themselves. And so I think being able to talk about it and being able to um, feel that there's no shame associated with saying like, hey, I need you to compliment me today. Like, I'm having a tough day. Like, that's there's no problem with that. And I want people right. to feel very comfortable reaching out for help. Yeah. Well, that's amazing, both of you. Thank you for sharing your stories. Okay, we have three closing segments for you both. First up, one of my favorites. It's game time. Lynn? Every podcast, we play a game in which the guest goes up against Julie. In this case, since we have two guests, it will be every woman for herself. It's a trivia game, five questions. The main rule is that you have to make a noise before you give an answer. We used to squeak in with an answer. Now it's whatever noise you have. So we'll go around the horn quickly with what each person has for a noisemaker. Keegan, what do you have? Nice. Dog squeaker toy. Nice. Keep- I'm just worried. I'm just hoping he's not going to like get his attention and he's going to be like, sweet, I want to come over. He's laying down nice and chill right now. <laughs> Jesse, what do you have? I've got the sugar snap peas. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Jules? That is a first, Jesse. I will, <laughs> I will say. Very creative. Um, I've upgraded my squeaky toy, actually. I've gone from my whoopee cushion, which was pure class, to a, a donut. Donut. Squeaky donut. Squeaky nice. toy in the shape of a donut. Right on brand, Julie. The theme of this game is great nicknames in sports history because I'm in the company of three incredible Mm -hmm. athletes who all have a great nickname. Keegan, let me see if I'm pronouncing this correctly. Is it Keekanimal? Keekanimal. Yep. Keekanimal. Good one. Of course, Loudy Foudy for very obvious reasons. (laughs) Jesse might take the prize, though, with Sparkle Chipmunk. (laughs) When Keegan introduced you, Jesse, she made reference to Sparkle Chipmunk, but can we get a quick backstory on where that came from? I think it came from Miss Chandra Crawford, um, and <laughs> um, she just decided that my power animal needed to be sparkly, whatever it was, because I'm a fairly sparkly person, um, and then a chipmunk, because it's just it's kind of small, but it's kind of quick and fast, and it's got a lot of energy. And Chandra is a mutual friend of ours. She's Canadian. She was an Olympic gold medalist in 2006 in skiing. Uh, and she started Fast and Female. Yeah. And is quite a sparkle person herself. Sparkle yeah. lion, it sounds like. Yeah. Sparkle lion. Yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> <laughs> that is rad. So all of these questions are about athletes with great nicknames. Here we go. Number one. Mildred Diedrichsen Zaharias is considered one of the greatest athletes of all time. Julie. Dave Diedrichsen. Boom! Correct. Correct. Oh, so I, I got I, the Diedrichsen thing was making sense, but yeah, good one. Good call. That was impressive. Julie, Julian Early, kids. Keep up yeah. if you can. Let's go. 
right. We got the gold medal in the final lap, so you just wait. <laughs> yeah. It's a real come from behind kind of thing. <laughs> Cross country kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, number two. What nickname did Ronda Rousey approve for herself? Uh, Was it A, Rebel Ronda Rousey, B, Ruby Ronda Rousey, C, Rowdy Ronda Rousey, or D, Loudy Ronda Rousey? Jesse. I think I know this because I read her book like five years ago. I think it was um, Rowdy. Correct. Yes. 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 I know it. I know it. Number three, at the 2012 London Olympics, the U.S. gymnastics team won gold and went by this nickname. Was it A, the Golden Girls, B, the Fierce Five, C, the (laughs) Jesse Diggins? It's the Fantastic Five. Incorrect. Darn. Wait, what Olympics? What Olympics did you say? 2012. 2012, okay. You really have to, you have to pay attention to the question, Jules. What was C? What was C? What was cheating, guys? C, the single ladies, or D, the final five? Give the, give the, give yeah. the A, B, and C. Sorry. Golden Girls, Fierce Five, Single Ladies, or Julie? I'm going to try Fierce Five. Oh, no, sorry, Keegan. Correct, Fierce Five. Oh, no, I knew it was something with a five. Yeah. Are we all tied up going into question four? One to one to one. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, is the Fantastic Five like a superhero movie? No, you might be right for 16. They were the final five. They change it every Olympics. What was 16? Final five? Final five. Oh. So maybe it was never the question. That was good. Mm -hmm. Here we go. Number four. In 1988 track star Florence Griffith Joyner set the world record in the 100 meters, which remains unbroken today. What is her fame? Mojo! What was it, her nickname? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's a good nickname. We'll go with number five to see see if there's a tie break. Yeah, we we need a tiebreaker. Good luck. I think I'm going to win it all. I'm going for this one. I'm going for the third. Donuts ready. <laughs> Number five. What is Boston Red Sox slugger David Ortiz's nickname? A, Big Poppy. Big Poppy! Big Poppy. <laughs> <laughs> what? I squeaked in first. Did Keegan get it? Who got it, Lynn? I think that was, video. It was like a photo finish type situation. Rewind the video, Lynn! I, think we I had my squeaker closer to the microphone. <laughs> I'm going to say, your squeaker's got like a delay between okay, the Okay, okay, I'll give it, I'll give it to like, It's like the slow motion, like push. Come on. It's too big. Next question, Lynn. One more. We're tied. Two, two to one. Here's the tie break. It is rock, paper, scissors between Julie and Keegan. This will be good. <sighs> So determine how you're doing it, what you need to do so you're on the same page. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot, right? Yep. Okay. I have to see you, Keegan. Okay. Ready? Mm -hmm. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. (laughs) She got me. Julie shot with scissors, Keegan with paper. The win goes to Julie Loudy Bowdy. There she is. The champion, undisputed. Yep. 
<laughs> She's doing her victory dance. <laughs> All right. Thank you for that. I am the winner. Let's just make that clear. Next most pressing questions. Jesse, what is a thing you do every summer called my big stupid? Oh, yeah. Um, so <laughs> I talk about this a lot in my book, but it's, it's a workout that isn't exactly smart because it's either really, really hard or really, really long and it takes a lot to recover from. But it was like um, one of them was roller skiing 100 kilometers in a day and it took six and a half hours. And another big stupid was um, doing the hardest intervals that I've ever done in my life. It was like 12 by three minutes all out bounding intervals. And I was like on my hands and knees afterwards like crawling around in the dirt but it was <laughs> there are things that I do that really build up my self-confidence and really challenge <laughs> it's your big stupid every summer yep. I love it I love I that only get one. Yep. Keegan what is the FFF FFF is forced family fun and <laughs> yes! uh, I grew up in a family that loved being outside together and so it was like no matter whether you wanted to go or not you were coming along and darn it we were gonna have fun but I am so fortunate to have had that experience growing up because it helped instill that love of being healthy and active. And I got to spend so much quality time with my family. And this is all like the, the crazy Randall family that lives in, in Alaska. It's an extended like grandpa, right? Wasn't he the ringleader of this? Yes. It's, it, uh, most of my mom's side of the family, uh, the Haynes family, there's seven siblings. Uh, my grandfather was super into athletics to uh, an aunt and an uncle that were both Olympians and everybody did sports at a high level. I have 21 cousins, and most of us grew up in Alaska together. So we were together every weekend. Uh, of course, Alaska is a huge uh, outdoor playground, so we were always hiking and camping, and uh, it was it was so much fun. But I remember being like 10 years old, and like the last thing I wanted to do was go for a hike. But five minutes into it, I was climbing trees and having a blast. And then our last segment is high, low cheer. We do this around the dinner table with my kids. They're high of the day, they're low of the day, and something they cheer for. But for you guys, what we're going to do is the high of your career, low of your career, and a cheer for someone you are grateful for that's helped you out along the way. Who wants to go first? I'll take this one. Um, I think the high of my career was actually this 4 by 5 k relay race. Uh, in northern Sweden. Sweden's one of my favorite countries. Um, but we're up above the Arctic Circle, so it's like dark at 2 p.m. So it's it's like this kind of low light day. Um, I had been coming into that season with an injury, getting over an injury, so I had I had no idea what to expect. Um, first opening World Cup weekend, we team up for this 4x5K relay. Our first leg knocks it out of the park, brings us in in contention with the leaders. I had a, I had a strong second leg, so I brought us in in second um, our, our little teammate, Liz, who's just this like little, just fighter, man. She just hung right in there and tagged off to Jesse for the last lap. And so Jesse ended up winning a photo finish for third place against the second Norwegian team. But if you had watched our celebration in the finish area, you would have thought we had won the race <laughs> because that was the first time as a team in the four person relay, we had ever gotten a world cup podium. And to uh. me, that is one of my favorite memories. And the best part was we had a fifth member of the team who wasn't able to race that day. And she was out on the course in these pink sparkly suspenders, screaming her face <laughs> off for us the entire time. And so we all celebrated in the finish. And to me, that's like one of my favorite highs of my career, because that was like the start of our team just really blossoming. 
Um, I think the low point for me was uh, the 2015 season. Um, I had been expected to win a medal in 2014, and I just didn't didn't put it together at the Olympics. And so in the next season, I really wanted to prove to myself that I could be um, at that top level. And I basically I burnt myself out. I was trying to do everything. I was training too hard. I was fulfilling sponsor obligations. And it was just, it was stress. And so that whole season, I just, I was missing a gear. Um, so that was kind of the low point. Although I think I probably learned more about myself in that season than any other season. You need your lows. Um, and uh, one of the favorite people that I like to cheer for is our women's team coach, Matt Whitcomb, who saw this group of talented young women coming together. Um, and he challenged us to not only work together on the snow, but to be the best teammates we could be off the snow to really create that team chemistry and to also be outward with our team spirit. So he encouraged us to, we did video challenges and poster challenges and it eventually led to the um, dance videos that Jesse choreographed for us. Um, and so he was just like, he was the one that really pushed us to be the best team we could be. And he is now just got named as the new uh, world cup head coach. So awesome. leading the team in the future. Oh, Jess. Well, it's cheesy, but I have to honestly say the high is when we won the Olympics together. And not just because it was winning the Olympics, because of what that team celebration meant mm -hmm. to all of us. And that super powerful surge of emotions that I still feel when I think about it. You know, you think about that moment and I don't know, Keegan, for you, but I still get goosebumps when I see pictures of that, mm -hmm. that team celebration afterwards. And so for me, the high is not necessarily the Olympic win, but the team chemistry and the feeling of celebrating that together. That's not cheesy, um, by the way. You're fine saying yeah. that's your high. Well, it is cheesy, but it's okay. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's okay to be a little cheesy. Um, and I'd say the low was um, the, the season right after I graduated high school in 2010-11, because that's when I was coming out of treatment for the eating disorder, and I was just pretty low self-confidence at that point in my life. And, you know, it, it, there were some amazing, super great memories in that year, but I don't think I was able to enjoy them that much because I was so hard on myself. So that was, that was definitely the low. Um, and I cheer for this next generation that's coming up. They're super committed to each other and to the team and their team chemistry is great and they support each other and they seem just genuinely excited to put in the hard work and train together to get to that next level in the World Cup level. And so I'm, I'm cheering for them because they're going to do some amazing things. They're way more talented than I was, but they also have the drive to see it through and to see it forward. So I'm very excited to watch and see what they can do. That is, that is the perfect ending because what I've always admired about you guys is that you celebrate other people, right? You celebrate each other, your incredible teammates from your dance competitions that Jesse, that, that Keegan just mentioned to your team Tuesdays. I mean, you have all these fun little traditions you do and silliness and there's joy to what you do and joy in being around each other. And I think more people need to see that right? That, yeah, I'm competing and I'm competitive, but I want my teammate to be just as successful. And that is such a healthy mindset. So thank you both. So many takeaways, Lynn. Let's start with you first. Yes, there were a lot of moments to choose from as far as lessons in this episode. And there was a particular quote from Keegan that stood out to me. She said, I choose the future I want. 
I actually wrote that quote down. There was another quote, in fact, from Keegan. It was a toss-up for me as far as which one to talk about. But the other one that really resonated with me is she said, after going through an experience like cancer, there aren't any mediocre days anymore. Which I thought was so powerful. Yeah. And Jesse saying as well, talking about the hard things is so empowering. Yeah. That was great. That was her quote. So much strength in showing vulnerability. Yeah. My takeaway is for two athletes who are in a very individual sport of cross country and, and not just individual, they're competing against each other all the time for a spot on that team, for a spot in that race. And yet they understood the value and power of a team mentality and nurtured that and built that and, and constantly talked about that when we're together, we're more successful. So when you understand the we is greater than the me, the rate of success is exponentially larger. And for them to figure that out in an individual sport, such as cross-country skiing, was fascinating to me and how well they've done it. All right, Lynn, questions permitted. Special 99ers movie edition. All of these <laughs> questions are from me, but really... They're on behalf of all 99ers fans. So first up, <laughs> how excited are you? This is actually something we've, we've been working on for a very long time. Is you know We've had a couple documentaries out on our 99ers group, Dare to Dream, which was done by Ross Greenberg's group at HBO way back in the days. And then we did the 99ers with ESPN Films, of course. And Ross... And our group of, so Ross Greenberg and our group of, of the 99ers for a very long time have been thinking, ah, this would be really cool to do th a theatrical release or uh, a film on, a real film on. So for Netflix to jump on this and say yes, and we're all in on this and we love this idea was, you know, was so exciting to all of us. We were like, Yes! All 20 of us. It was so fun. We actually had a great text chain going of, this is awesome. Can you share that text chain with all of us? <laughs> they wouldn't mind, right? Mostly excitement as well. I mean, beyond the, the, the fact that people um, are, that the team is excited that more will understand the history of women's soccer a little bit more mm -hmm. through this and, and kind of the struggles of it. Um, but also very excited that there's a possibility of a reunion in our future. Oh. Thinking selfishly. We're like, wait, does this mean we get to see each other again? Yes. On that note, when do you think the movie will come out? Uh, it'll take probably. I, I. You still have to hire a script writer. You got to write the script. You got to cast the characters. So it's it's a waste. It's a good... Yeah, it, we're talking years. Okay. So maybe, I mean, more than a year. So you think we'll be out of quarantine by then? <laughs> maybe. Maybe <laughs> not. The most important question, the burning question, who will play the 99ers? I'm sure mm. there was some talk on that 99ers text chain of ideas. Mm. I think we could do an entire podcast on this question. So I'm going <laughs> to narrow it down to who do we think should play Julie Foudy? Mm. Who do you think? I put the question of who should play the 99ers out there on Twitter. Here were some responses for your character. Possible actresses include 
Natalie Portman. Mm-hmm. Love Natalie. Your friends at Goal 5 said Julia Roberts. Aw, love Julia. Cecily Strong came up several times, yeah. as did Rachel Brosnahan. Uh-huh. Emma Stone. Brie Larson. Yeah, I saw that one. Personally, I think Brie Larson for Brandy Chastain, but we can talk about that another time. My favorite <laughs> suggestion, I think this could be the winner. Dolly Parton? No? Wasn't out there? Okay. <laughs> a quick aside, years ago, I remember asking you about if there, if there was ever a possibility there would be a movie, and you sort of hinted, yeah, we've talked about it. And I remember asking you who would play you without missing a beat. You deadpanned. Dolly Parton. Farrah Fawcett. Hot blonde. So a loyal listener of ours had a great suggestion. At Alice Sauce on Twitter said, Kate McKinnon. Oh, love me some Kate McKinnon. She would bring the energy. (laughs) But out of all of these, Uh, is there one that stands out to you who could really capture your essence? My essence. Uh... I like. I actually like a lot of those. I I don't really have any um, strong feelings yet. I'll mm-hmm. get back to you on that. Okay, fair enough. All right, I'm happy to report that joke is so dumb. We don't know if we should laugh or cry. Segment. We've decided to keep this going. Lynn, what is your quick joke? What is a ghost's favorite dessert? Wait, say that again. What is a a ghost's favorite dessert? Yes. What? Booberry pie. <laughs> At first I thought you said boob. Airy pie. <laughs> no, no, correct pronunciation, is- Julie, is booberry pie. <laughs> <laughs> full, full disclosure, Declan's part of this book club, my 11-year-old, and the mom sent an email out. Welcome to the first boob club of... <laughs> I just thought that was the best. I wrote back, reply all. I have always wanted to be part of a boob club. (laughs) Thank you for that. And she's like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) I would not tell you her name. She'd kill me. All right, my joke. um, I can't remember if I've told this already on the pod. And if I have, so what? Um, It's quarantine. Everything goes. Uh, I'm going to stick with my vegetable themes. Okay. Mama tomato, papa tomato, and baby tomato are taking a walk. Have I told this? No. Okay, good. Um, Lynn is like my memory. And mama tomato and papa tomato say, baby tomato, you stay with us. I don't want you just like, you know, losing us. Like you stay close. So Mm -hmm. they're mama tomato and papa tomato are chatting, 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 chatting. And all of a sudden they look and baby tomato is way back there. So Mama Tomato looks to Papa Tomato and says, would you have a word with him? So Papa Tomato goes stomping back there and he points to the baby tomato when he gets there and he points at him and he stomps on the ground and he goes, catch up. (laughs) (laughs) So hard to do, just orally. I just realized that's a very physical joke. I have to show you that I'm stomping on baby tomato. Catch up. I couldn't see you tell the joke, but I could feel you tell the joke. Okay. You always bring it, Julie. That was good. Okay.
That's a wrap on this episode. If you like what you hear, please tell a friend or 500 about the podcast. That's how we've grown this dope village of ours, by the way. And if you haven't done so yet, please head over to our Apple podcast page to subscribe, leave a rating, and leave a comment as well. You can always hit us up on social media. I'm at Julie Foudy. Lenny O is at Lenil Zowie. Be sure to hashtag it laughter permitted. And most important, Keep being good to yourself, prioritize self-care, whether that means a walk or a workout, get enough sleep, connecting with a friend who makes you laugh, do whatever it takes to take care of you. A big thank you to our sponsors, Ally Bank and Cliff and Company for supporting the Dope Village and a shout out as always to the uber talented Kate Diaz for our amazing theme music in case you hadn't heard. She's a Julie Foudy Sports Leadership Academy alum. And as always, kids, remember, sing it with us. Laughter permitted. The cinnamon roll is a donut, Keegan. Yes, it is. It is. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>